Welcome to Lift and Love Conversations, where we're building a supportive culture around LGBTQ families in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Allison Dayton, and I'll show you how to embrace your child and your spiritual discomfort to deepen and grow your testimony of Jesus Christ. And I am Jenny Hunter, and I will help you identify and overcome obstacles that can get in the way of sustaining healthy relationships. And I help you realize the blessings of being an LGBTQ family. Each week, we will bring you lessons that we've learned from our own lives, the experiences from hundreds of families that we have worked with, and conversations with amazing experts. Hello, our Lift and Love community. We, okay, we're a little gaga today because we have two men that we, they've rocked our world in the last couple months. I think every conversation we've had has been talking about the book that has, they wrote together and proclaim peace, which we have said many quotes out of it already for many of our podcasts. And we have the authors on today, Patrick Mason and David Pulsiver is with us. So this is, we are so excited about this conversation. We know that what we will learn and what the Lord will teach us in this hour will change your hearts and it will change ours. I know. Exactly. We're excited too. Thanks for having us. Oh, for sure. Thank you both so much. Well, and what a better time. Like, let's just talk about the timing of the book and how it landed just at probably like the most conflict-ridden time of our church, probably in many decades, really. Amazing. Yeah, we, we've been working on this book together for 10 years. So it wasn't like we were waiting for things to get really bad before, <laughs> before we, we dropped the book. It just happened that way. But but sometimes maybe there's a little bit of providential purpose in, in uh, some, some of this timing. But certainly the world, the church, our, our broader culture is in need of, of healthier ways of engaging conflict. Absolutely. Well, and that's what drew me to the title. I love, Patrick, I love your writing, I think planted, helped me see things new and restoration was such a changing, like a life changing, like vision changing for the church for me that I love that. So this vision changing for how you look at human beings was so powerful. It is. I do that just proves my point, Patrick. I really feel like God is five steps ahead of us always. And this book is a never another testament of that, right? When you start writing it 10 years ago, you probably had no idea how visionary what our world would look at like in 2021, right? And it's it is yeah. a great handbook for us in 2021 for sure. No, that's absolutely true. And and I I, I feel that way with, with all of these books and that I, I feel the same way that, that the spirit is moving upon the waters, that, that, that God is doing something in, in this church and, and in the world and, and wants, is calling us to something better. So it's for me, it's not a matter of creating anything so much as just getting on board. Yeah, so true. Okay, Jenny, why don't you introduce them and then we can, we'll dig into the book, but... Yeah, there's so much goodness here. It was hard for us to kind of pare down where we'd go, but let's let's hear a little bit about you too, and then we'll dig in. Yeah, and why don't you guys introduce yourself? Like Patrick, you are a professor at Utah State, right? Yeah, so I teach at Utah State. I, I hold what's called the Leonard Arrington Chair in Mormon History and Culture. I've been here a couple of years. I've, I've taught at a few other places before that, but yeah, my wife and I live here in Logan. We've got four kids, and we're happy here. Such a great place to uh, raise your kids. Yeah, really. It's one of the reasons we, we came. It's It's been terrific. Well, my missionary is going up there and he'll be up there next fall. So I'm having him sign up. All right. Sounds <laughs> good. Yeah. He's, he's fascinated with war. So it'll be interesting to see how he takes the second half of the book. Well, I, I teach a, co- a course called Religion, Violence and Peace. So he needs to sign up at the uh, Gen Ed course. So he needs to sign up. For sure. For sure. I, I, I'll, I'll get him there. <laughs> All right. And David, you do conflict management for your day job, right? No, actually, I'm a professor of history. Both of us are historians at uh, BYU-Idaho, but we have also just recently started a new uh, program. It's a minor in peace and conflict transformation. So I do teach classes, one class called Conflict and Peace, and, and then another one, the History of Peace, and, and another one called Conflict Transformation and Peace Building, which we're teaching actually for the first time next semester. So mediation on the side, mostly just as a volunteer right now, but that's, that's, yeah, that's, we've been living in Rexburg for about 25 years almost. I raised our family here and it's been a great place for us as well. Uh, only other place that I would probably think about moving other than Rexburg would be Logan area. I just, I love Cash Valley. So, you know, yeah. 
my favorite places. So, so looking for houses for you, David. <laughs> so, so how did you two find each other and how did this book even get started? So we first met in 2007, I believe it was, at the Mormon History Association conference. It was being held in Salt Lake City that year. And I had just been handed from a friend of mine an article that Patrick had written while he was in graduate school called The Possibilities of Mormon Peacebuilding. And I just had to find this author. So I basically accosted him at the conference and told him how excited I was at the work he was doing. He was going to Cairo to teach at the American University there. And I was going to India. So we kind of, both of our wives were pregnant at the time. I think it was interesting confluence of events. And and then later after he returned from, from Egypt and, and, and I, of course, was eventually back in BYU-Idaho. We got together um, for a conference, and it was the Peace and Justice Studies, I think, Association Conference in Milwaukee. And then things have just gone from there in a variety of wonderful ways. And Patrick suggested we write a book together, and that's how this all began about 10 years ago. Oh, well, you're both, you both sort of, even early on, just had a fascination, I would say, with peace, right? Like how yeah, for me, that, it goes it, it goes back to I had a very comfortable childhood. I grew up in the suburbs of Salt Lake. And so uh, a, a lot of in a, in a great family, you know, great church experience, all those kinds of things. So for me, really, my my first main exposure to, to these kinds of things came at uh, BYU in my freshman year. I took a history of civilization course from Professor Wilfred Griggs and Alan Keel legendary course called the pen and the sword where we went through like the history of western civilization on this theme of like how is it that humans always say they want peace but end up in war uh, mm-hmm. and end up fighting each other and so we, so we looked through scriptural texts and literary texts and listened to opera and you know did all kinds of amazing things to, to reflect on this so that was really important for me and then foundational and then when i went to notre dame I was exposed to to this thing called peace studies, which I didn't even know existed, sort of stumbled into a class with a bunch of peace studies students. And it just absolutely captured my imagination to to meet these people from all around the world who were were motivated to to, to work for peace and justice in their various contexts. And so I I left my Ph.D. program for a year, got my master's degree in peace studies and then went back and finished the Ph.D. Wow. Wow. David, what about you? So my journey was in some ways similar, in some ways different. I I never had formal training like Patrick did. I never found peace studies. I didn't even know it existed. He had the benefit of going to to uh, graduate school a few years after I did. So I I would, did my undergraduate in American studies at BYU, and then went on to do a PhD in American studies at the University of Minnesota. So my training was in cultural studies, and in cultural studies we do a lot of analysis of conflict. A lot of really wonderful theories that helped me understand power and, and cultural dynamics and so on. But I, I remember feeling like there was something wanting. And I, I approached my professors. I said, I, I, these are really helpful for me to understand the dynamics of the world. But where are the theories about altruism and love? And they looked at me and said, that's a great question. I don't know. And they could not point me anywhere. And so I spent my entire graduate graduate studies without any guidance my professors were fantastic human beings but none of them could could direct me in the in to the question towards answering the questions i had it wasn't until i was teaching at what was then rick's college and then later byu idaho and i was, I was teaching the civil rights movement and i started noticing the parallels with what the was happening in the civil rights movement with one of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon, which is the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the ways in which they went out and met their oppressors and transformed their hearts through their willingness to suffer at their hands. And I thought, oh my word, this, 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 what's going on here is exactly the same thing. So I got very interested in nonviolence theory and just read my way into it and fascinated with the intersections of those theories with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, so much of what the civil rights movement motivated the civil rights movement was their deep faith in Christ. And, you know, led by pastors, it was being led, the most famous, of course, being the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And so it was a real easy for me to see the ways in which the theology, our theology and those principles were just the same uh, in many ways. And so that, that got me interested. And that's when I, and so when I read Patrick's essay, it was like one of the first people I'd seen who was really thinking about how these things dovetail. 
And that's what, that's why I had to meet him. <laughs> oh, I love it. And I love to see God working a lot 10 years ago to bring something like this about. So amazing. I, I have to say the ideas that you bring up with Nephi and the Book of Mormon, like totally shifted everything for me. Yeah. The, the pattern. Look at, yeah. Yeah. The uh, David is an amazing reader of scripture. One of the things that I love the most uh, from our collaboration was just reading scripture with him because he he sees things in, in ways that I oftentimes miss. And so it's most of those really good readings of scripture we, we can attribute to, to David. And, and, and part of it is just learning to see scripture through a new lens, yeah. right? asking different questions. That's why where I think both of us really benefited from from our education or from reading other things, from paying attention to things sort of outside of Mormonism, that we were able to, to, to get some of those lenses from other believers or, or sometimes people of no faith, but people who are committed to peace, people who are committed to making the world a, a, a more just place. And then we could bring that back into Restoration Scripture and say, wait a minute, this has been hiding in plain sight all along. Really, I don't, I, in all the times I've read the Book of Mormon and the, all the times I was yet to read the Book of Mormon, I'm not sure that I could have ever taken the the book of mormon stories out of the war and into yeah. like i'm not sure i could have ever done that without your understanding and the way you view it it's just it's it changes everything in the way i think we and we need it because we're there right right yeah. we're in this conflict that it feels like we're all justified so so let me just quickly say so i I know David's sister. We were connected because we both have gay sons and I loved Holly immediately. Obviously, she's wonderful. And Holly did a story for us a couple of months back. I meant to get the stats, but it was like it was read by like, I don't know how many, 35,000 people or something like that. Like crazy amounts of people read the story of her sons coming out and how it had enriched her testimony. So I had she and another woman over who also had had a gay son and we were talking and I was saying how excited I was about this book coming up. And she said, well, my brother, I said, oh, Patrick Mason. Sorry, David, about this part. But I said, Patrick Mason has written this, written this book about conflict. And I'm so ever since like the last couple of years in politics and mass, I've been I, I have always been demanded people listen to me and understood me and believed what I thought. I'm passionate and I'm strong and I speak loudly. And so I've always been that kind of person, but now I started realizing like, that's not helpful and it's not doing what I think it's doing. So I started watching with polit politics and everything. And I just realized like what I'm doing is wrong. And I think it sent me down this path of like, how do I handle conflict? in a better way and we'll get to that with youtube but like so so interesting so holly's like i'll i'll give you his his phone number so i connected and last night she told me she's like david she says david is the oldest of six and i'm the second he's always been the perfect and ideal brother even in our adult years we all rely on wisdom <laughs> yeah. and his love and kindness which i think is high praise from a sister mm-hmm well, that's, uh, yeah, and uh, that means an awful lot because uh, Holly's just one of the people I admire most in this world, and and what she's been doing has just been tremendous. And, and interestingly enough, probably the greatest conflicts in my life actually came when we were younger. You know, typical brother sister sibling rivalry stuff, but it was such a joy when we got past that and found ways to. Uh, she is just one of my favorite people, and became one of my best friends. So. I was younger when I like probably was not was not open to that. <laughs> well, I was going to say I'm reading this and I'm like I remember my brother chasing me around the house with some sort of like I think it was my baton, but it was like felt like a club. You know what I mean? And I was trying not to get hit. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, their life was idyllic and mine was crazy. Yeah, so I'm glad to know that part. <laughs> right. That's good. That everybody um, learns early the conflict management through siblings for sure. Yeah. yeah true. <laughs> Yeah. So true. Uh, truth be told, truth be told, the, the my it was largely jealousy on my part. She was faster than I am, stronger than I am, and more popular than I was. And she was my younger sister, and that just didn't feel like the way it was supposed to be when I was younger. But I got over that pride eventually, and and uh, was able to. Uh, to well, she, she's amazing. She's amazing, mm -hmm. and she thinks you're amazing, and. She said that you, she said once to me that you love her son, Sam, who is gay, 
as much as she does. And, and I mean, I, that like, who could, who could, what mom could say that about another person that's really high praise. So I love it. Okay. Will you two talk to us about the conflict theories and the theological journey that you went on on just like what might pertain to what we're doing here as moms and, and the theological ideas of conflict that you sussed out in this book? Sure. Maybe I'll, I'll start David and then I'll pass it over to you. Does that work? So, so, so for us, one of the things that, that is just foundational for us in, in this book is the, the scripture from DNC 121, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by power of the priesthood or by virtue of the priesthood, except through, and I don't have it memorized, David probably does, except through love, long suffering, meekness, gentleness, kindness, right? Love unfeigned. And, and I heard that scripture a million times growing up in the church, usually in priesthood meetings, as if it only applied to men, right? <laughs> and, and it took me uh, a, a long time, but, but, but now I understand that actually in some ways that is one of the most inspired statements that was ever revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith. And, and here's why that, that oftentimes we focus on the no power or influence ought to be exercised or maintained through these things. So in other words, you ought to be nice, right? You ought to love people. You ought to be kind. And, and that's really important. We ought to, to do all those things. But the kind of singular insight in that verse is that it's not just no power influence ought to be maintained, but no power influence can or ought to be maintained except through these godly characteristics. And this is the thing. So in, in Mormon theology, we believe that we are all free agents, right? And we have always been free agents as, in, as intelligences eternally, even before we were born, we were free agents. And so in a universe of free agents, you can force people to do things temporarily, right? And, and this is what political leaders have done. This is sometimes what parents have to do in a righteous way, right? Little Johnny's running out into the street. You don't say, please, Johnny, stop. You grab Johnny, right? So, so there, there are times that, that, that even, I, I think there's a kind of righteous impulse to, 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 to restrain somebody even, even forcefully at, at times in, in that relationship of love. But you, you can't hold on to Johnny forever, right? At some point, Johnny's going to have to learn on his own not to run into the street, right? At some point, that power or influence that you have over him can't or her, it can't be done through, through intimidation, can't be done through force, can't be done through coercion of any kind. And so in this universe, in this world, the only kind of power influence that can be maintained over time comes through meekness and gentleness and kindness and long suffering, and most of all, love unfeigned. So that to us is the foundational principle. It's not just a nice way to live your life, right? But this is the way that power works in this world and in, the, in, in this universe. This is the way that godly power works. That's the way that God exerts power over us, not through coercion and intimidation, but rather through kindness, gentleness, and love. So that's a foundation for us. And, and but, but then we think, again, we, we learn some things along the way from reading other things and through life experience, and most of all from the scriptures about what conflict is and, and what, what conflict isn't. And David, do you want to pick up from there? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, as Patrick mentioned, that all power in the universe, including God's power, is based on love and trust. Ultimately, trust is enduring. Uh, fear is temporary. All of those things. So then we get to if we take the, that principle, this idea that that how we try to engage in exerting influence in the world and start thinking about the way conflict works. One of the things that's I think most um, remarkable about Latter-day Saint theology is that we don't actually, if we really get into it, the, our theology does not posit the idea that conflict is bad. So this is something that I think sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we think we believe. We think we believe it because people will quote endlessly the scripture from 3 Nephi chapter 11, where the Savior says, contention is not of me, but of the devil. And we say, okay, so conflict is bad. If I'm in a conflict with my wife or my sibling or my roommate or, you know, whoever, then I must be of the devil right now. That 
And we immediately think that conflict is a, is a negative thing. But interestingly enough, if we go back to this, to that verse, it doesn't say conflict is not of me. It says contention is not of me and contention and conflict are not the same thing. And this is where we look at, I mean, one of the things that makes Latter-day Saint theology so um, unusual is we have four versions of the creation story, right? We've got three in the scriptures. We've got Genesis, we've got Moses, we've got Abraham, and we have a version of it in the temple ceremony. And in each one of these, these, descriptions of the creation, we have a very interesting dynamic that goes on, which is a division. God divides the light from the darkness. God divides the land from the, the water. God divides the firmament from the, the waters above and below the firmament. God creates multiple creations in both plant life and animal life, and then creates male and female. And in this process of creating difference, and in this process of creating division, it is good. And uh, God looks at it and says, this is good. It is good to have a world that is divided. And the minute we have a world that is divided, you have these opposites of light and darkness, of land and water that are now in conflict with one another, in tension with one another. They're put deliberately into that kind of a relationship. And it's in the conflict that the creation occurs. It's in the the ways in which I live near the Tetons, one of my favorite and to me, one of the most sacred places in the world. And those Tetons were created as the earth lifted itself up and as the waters came down upon it and, and carved out these remarkable peaks and, and canyons and, and left us with that process still happening. And it's, and we have these, these streams and these waterfalls and, and we go to the edges of oceans and watch the waves crashing against the rocks and or on or lapping up on the beach. And those are the places we're drawn to in the world. It's the creative places in the world where things are in conflict with one another. And so if we can start looking at conflict as actually having potentially a creative element to it, and, and it plays in music as, as well, the tension between a bow and the strings or the between um a hammer and the strings on a piano. It's that, and harmony, right? Yeah. We actually have things that are intention, two notes that are in tension with one another, and it's in the tension that you get the beauty. So conflict itself is, is a necessary dynamic in the universe. And that's where we then ask the question, not is conflict to be avoided because we're classic. Latter-day Saints are classic. Of course, most of the world is, but as Latter-day Saints, we're especially good at avoiding conflict. And so the, the point is not to avoid conflict, but to engage the conflict in a creative way rather than a destructive way, because conflict can be destructive. Conflict can leave devastation and pain and, and, and death in its wake, but conflict can also create life and create beauty and create joy. So the question becomes not how do I avoid conflict, but how do I engage conflict? Because conflict is inevitable. And therefore, we have to learn how to embrace it and learn how to. And I think our theology teaches us to embrace conflict in love. And when we embrace it in love, it creates a very different outcome than when we engage, engage it in anger or fear. I love that because I have to say, so back to where we come from, the conflict of I have a gay son and I had a gay brother has been sort of that that conflict has been the making of my testimony. Right. Sort of like the Tetons are getting there some some way, maybe not quite that high up, but that like under like it wasn't until I had to figure that out that I even began to like dive into what the religion was really teaching me. And that it was all in the conflict. It was the, that was the catalyst. And it's still it's still a conflict. Often. Yeah, and, and, and we have this notion already. We, we, we know, for instance, we talk about the pioneers all the time, right? Yeah. That their faith was forged in hardship and in these kinds of things. And, and yeah. so, but, but it's, it's, it's not just the experience itself, right? I'm walking across the plains. It's just going to give you sore feet. It's, it's, it's what do you do with those kinds of experiences? What do you do with the conflict that, that finds its way in, into your life? So, so as David said, for, for us, the, the whole book, again, it's really just trying to channel the, the principles that are in the, the scriptures already of engaging this conflict in, in love, in productive ways that are going to produce growth rather yeah. than, than just suffering. 
Yeah, the creative conflict versus the destructive conflict. That that principle right there was the game changer. Just in the way that I'm discussing things with someone else, am I being creative? Am I helping? Or and I, or am I being destructive? And I like how that ties in with nonviolence as well, because I, I it wasn't until Kate we had Kate Toronto on our podcast and she was talking about how and she's a woman that had done some research LGBTQ research and she talked about the how she had decided to be have a nonviolent approach meaning not even hurting people with the things she said but still speaking up and I love that how you bring all of that into this kind of creative conflict what would you call it conflict management conflict approaching conflict with the creativity or we're we're, we're both shaped by the notion of uh, conflict transformation So it's not just managing it. It's not just resolving it, like making it go away, but it's actually transforming it, it, taking the kind of fuel that conflict has and and doing something positive with it. And and we're we're drawing on there's there's a lot of literature on this. The kind of father of conflict transformation theory is a guy named John Paul. But so, yeah, for, for us, it's about transforming conflict with love, not just getting rid of it. Or, or, or putting the pot, the, 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 the lid on, on, on the pot. Right. Well, so this, is, this brings me to, so your book doesn't have anything to do with LGBTQ issues. Nothing. I don't know. Not, even not directly. Not you, directly. I, yeah, I don't think it's, yes, of course, not directly. But I don't think you even speak of it, do you, in the book? I don't think we do. Or, and, and maybe just very in passing very briefly in a few places. But that's we, we, we have all of those letters in the book, but probably not together. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's code. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So don't expect reading the book that, that you will find this. But so when we as families and individuals, I'll speak to families. It's easier for me just because I am in an LGBTQ family. And, and I had a brother who grew up in the really hard times of cultural and religious beliefs around LGBTQ people. And it was ultimately sort of the end. It was sort of the destruction of him for a lot of reasons. But so in our conflict, I'm going to borrow your wording from, you did that, a podcast, Patrick, with Faith Matters and Tom Christofferson after President Holland's talk and you used the term the Zion Canyon. And I really, I like that because I think we're all really trying to go to the same place, but we're on this, this canyon, right? And on one side we have, I I believe what we're, we have is a stereotype that was sort of formed in the early seven, the seventies and eighties, this cultural and religious beliefs about LGBTQ people. They, and, and there's a bit of a war cry, right? of defend the family and the LGBTQ people are enemies to God. And I think it comes from a good place, protecting families, which we so value and marriage, which we value. And, it, and I think we historically, LGBTQ people were sort of ostracized from their culture and their family. So they stood alone and we looked at them in a certain way, like they were, we had AIDS and we had all sorts of things that sort of built this idea. But now 20 to 30 years, 40 years later, we have kids coming out in LGBT or in Latter-day Saint homes and they're comfortable to come out and their parents are embracing them and, and they see their divinity and they're there in this with them. So we have families, um, so now these the kind of the things that we used to say, like protecting the family, well, those things are landing on families, those kind of comments and the family's taking the shock of that rather than just the individual. And it's causing an even, I think, bigger Zion Canyon, right? So, so the, the thing that Jenny and I really talked about was how do we teach our families to speak up in nonviolent ways? in within the church to help people understand who they are as an LGBTQ family, who their children are and what they're learning. So is that too much to (laughs) (laughs) solve world peace for us now, right now? (laughs) That's what I said at the beginning. And then if you guys could just solve this problem, Yes. And you two promised you would. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, because I think you guys see it too, where like both sides have such good intention, but it seems to be we're at an impasse and there's a lot of division that the Lord cannot be happy with. 
Well, and like you said, Patrick, we're lobbing artillery shells at each other. Maybe I could jump in here because I love, I, I also love that podcast, by the way. Image for me was, was a striking image too. And I, I liked the way Patrick phrased it, which he says it's the space between where Jesus does his work, right? That's the work of Jesus is in that space in between that, that, that what appears to be a chasm. And I think part of the challenge is twofold. One is being willing to speak with love, to, to, to be like the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, to go out and meet people who feel like they're our enemies sometimes, right? So, and this is, I think I'm talking to, to both sides of the canyon here, to go out and to meet people to greet them and to do it in a spirit of love and to stand for the truth that one feels passionate about and to speak that truth, but to all, but not speak it in a way that's trying to necessarily dominate, right? So one of the problems that we have in our society is that we live in a world that doesn't give us very good role models of how to do this. We, we live in a world that's a zero-sum game. Every conflict is a zero-sum game. We have to win, and everything that our side believes in has to be victorious. And the other side has to accept whatever truth we are bringing to the table. And it's when we get into that kind of a conflict and that kind of a dynamic. And, and, and then what we have is we're surrounded by tons of allies who tell us if, if they other side doesn't accept what you're proposing, then they are evil, you know, or they're wrong or they are whatever it might be. And, and part of the challenge of conflict transformation is actually learning to live with the tension and not necessarily getting it resolved, not necessarily having one side win. If you think about creation, if, if water won, we'd be living in a pretty miserable place. If land won, we would, it would be an equally miserable place. We, we live in the tension and we're not necessarily going to resolve that tension and that's a, that's a challenging place to live. And that's where the love of Jesus really helps us through it because we, we learn how to live with the tension and to see each other um, as sons and daughters of God, people who are speaking and, and trying to with as best with the tools they have to, to pursue truth and to, to, give each other the benefit of the doubt and to say, we may never be able to re fully resolve this, but we love one another and we can live in that tension with one another. That's where I think the beauty happens. That's where the canyons get created. That's where the sunsets and the sunrises get created in our world. It's is when we learn to live and hold that tension in a, in a spirit of love with one another, because as you said, there's, there's truth and there's goodness on in, in both camps and, being able to not listen to the allies who tell us and what I mean, the allies on both sides again here that they're telling us that it, it's a, it's a zero sum game and which is not, it's, it's going to be in many ways, maybe a perpetual tension. Yeah. For, for me, the, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that David pointed out that in that metaphor that I used of, of Zion Canyon, that, that I really do think the most important place is the, the the space in between because that is where Jesus is. For me, the 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 scripture that changed and continues to to just transform the way that I think about the work of Jesus in the world comes from Ephesians two, uh, where it says, "But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He reconciles both groups to God in one body through the, cry, through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And so that's the work of Jesus. Jesus recognized, here the specific context is about Jews and Gentiles, but this could be for any groups in, in hostility. It could be between a husband and wife. It could be between siblings. It could between, be between people of different political persuasions, or it could be between LGBTQ folks and, 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 and then sort of gender and marriage traditionalists within the church. And 
And Jesus occupies that space and proclaims peace to everybody. And he wants to break down the hostility, the dividing walls that, that exist between us and, and to reconcile all things in one through the cross. Now, we in the short term, we don't always know how to get there. It's it's, it's hard to know. So it's, it's important, I think, for us to build some of these bridges across the canyon. And, and I think that's the kind of work that you're doing here is, is to try and, and to, to say there isn't a necessary divide here. We, we can learn to love one another, even in our differences. That's what David's been talking about. But that, that to me is the fundamental work of Jesus is to proclaim peace to those who are near and to those who are far off. And in this conflict in the church right now, this is the thing. Everybody feels hurt. Yeah. Everybody feels pain. Right. So it's, it's, it's not just one side. And, and when you've got two groups in a conflict, both of whom feel pain, both of whom feel attacked, both of whom feel victimized, vulnerable, minoritized, that is a bad position to start from. And so that's that's exactly where, where love has to step in. And the refusal, the, 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 the main principle of nonviolence is non-harm, right? That I will not harm the, the other person because I see in them the dignity. And in, in, in our case, in, in, in theological categories, I see them that they're a child of God just as much as me. Even if we fundamentally disagree about this thing, they are a child of God just as much as I am. That's the place we begin from, and then we go from there. And, and it's not an easy place to get your brain. No, it's not. Every incentive is otherwise. Every psychological incentive, every cultural incentive, we naturally put up defenses. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm wrong about everything, <laughs> right? Or about the things that I care about most. So the very natural thing to do is, is to put up these barriers and to, to see another person as the other. That's, that's how radical the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is that it asks, asks us to drop those pretenses and to see the other person the way that God sees them. That's the hardest thing to do. You know, I have to say, when with this last political, the presidential, the 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 leading up to the the race, I had this dear friend who I just value so much and just so wise, and she believed she was really like all in with the other candidate. And I was, it was the first time in my life I was like, maybe there's something I'm missing because I loved her. Otherwise, I would have just dismissed her out of hand, like crazy. And it was just that feeling of like I, either it doesn't matter which one we, which political candidate we believe in, or it's okay either way. You know what I mean? It just was this first time that this kind of idea, no matter how destructive I think, whatever the, the candidate was, was the first time that it sort of occurred to me that there's something more important than who was right on this one. I had stuff to learn from her and hopefully she had something to learn from me. There's, there's a wonderful line from President Benson's famous talk on pride. It says, pride it says pride is more concerned with who is right than what is right. And, and often we see that happen in our, in our conflicts. So, you know, we, 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 we become convinced that it's important for our narrative to be right <laughs> and yeah. not is right. And what is right is to love one another. And of course, again, that's this, the thing that the, the, the culture around us is constantly pulling us away and saying, no, what you need to do is find people that believe like you do and then rally with them against the people who are not, who do not believe like you do. And, and the minute we're into that, then the, as it says in, in this kind of really moving part of Moses where Enoch sees Satan laughing at the, the division that he's created in the world and God weeping. He says, I, I commanded them to love one another and they hate their own blood. Right. And so it's whenever we find ourselves dismissing the other side or seeing them in anger, then, then we're playing into the adversaries, you know, playbook here. Yeah. It's, but it is, it's a challenging, challenging space to get to, but it's in that gap. I love that image. The Zion Canyon is to me one of my favorite images that it's in the gap kind of stepping into that gap that we find the love of Jesus creating something and lifting us and bringing us together and uniting us. I love that because we know Enoch took 365 years. So let's hope we can figure this out quicker than him, right? Like that, that would be a long time for us to endure this. But like one of the tools I use for myself is 
when I'm in conflict with somebody I go to, they're just like me. How are they just like me? Like, like that kind of mindset helps me. Is there any, how, because you guys have studied this, you know, this is your life's works almost like what are some other tools that we could give our families on both sides to shorten the gap, find the bridges. My favorite scripture on this is in, it's been one of my favorite scriptures for years. I think this is the one I even put on my missionary plaque (laughs) is Moroni seven, verse 48. Wherefore my beloved brother pray unto the father with all the energy of heart that you may be filled with this love. I think sometimes we, we think we have to muster the love ourselves. And especially for people that we disagree with when, when, when the Lord tells us to love our enemies, he doesn't leave us without resources to do that. The Lord says, love your enemies and I will help you. I will, in fact, I will give you my love for them if you will ask for it. And so when, when we're asked to love those who are hard to love people with whom we are in deep disagreement, I think too often, and I myself, I, I don't avail myself of this enough is to go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to love them. Help me to see them the way you do. You know, there's this famous and, and beautiful image of Corey Ten Boom, who had this experience with a guard that had been very brutal to her and her sister and, and meeting him later at a meeting where she had been preaching forgiveness and, and he approaches her and she knows she does not have the power to, to love him. So she pleads in that moment for, for, for God's love. And she, all she can do is raise her hand. And so maybe that's a, a beautiful image is, is that maybe we can't feel it, but we can go out there, we can pray and ask God for, for help in doing it and then raise our hand to, 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 to connect with the other person. And when she does, she feels that love flow into her and she realizes, you know, this gift from God. So I think uh, we often think we're going to do that with, with really, you know, horrible and easily identified enemies, but we have to do this kind of work all the time in our own homes with people that we love and find ourselves in conflict with. And we need, we need God to help us to get past that in our homes and our wards and in our communities, generally in our nations, surely we need to be praying for that love. That's my, Patrick, you have anything, any other tool? I think that's great. I, I think another set of principles it would be to, God does not ask us to simply roll over. He does not ask us to be passive in the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in the face of injustice that, that we may experience. But in fact, we see over and over. And, and so uh, this is one of the things that David always talks about with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that, that they didn't just wait for people to come and slaughter them. They, they actually went out and proactively went and, and, and met them and, and they were defending their families. Oftentimes people say, oh, well, well, you've got to defend your families with, with the, the sword or whatever violent weapons you have at your disposal. Well, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did defend their families. They defended their families with love and they went out and met that in in their case, their enemies who were literally trying to kill them, and they met them with with love, and it was a proactive act. Now, there was a lot of suffering. There was a lot of death that day. There was, though, a lot less death than we see, uh, and a lot less suffering than we see in most of the other battles between Nephites and Lamanites between different kinds of groups. And so, there's no promise. God does not give us the promise that as as we engage these things in love that there will not be suffering. He does not promise us that. He doesn't promise us that there won't be pain. He doesn't promise us that that there won't be loss. We worship a God who is crucified on the cross. We worship a God who is vulnerable and opens himself up to pain. So God doesn't promise us insulation from any of those things, but what he does do is he gives us a set of tools to proactively assert our dignity Right. And so when we do feel like we're being attacked, when we feel like great injustice has been done, he doesn't ask us just to roll over, but he gives us principles to actually engage in love. So that's what, and we talk about it in the book. We don't have probably time to talk about it here, but that's what turned the other cheek and go the extra mile and all those things in the Sermon on the Mount. All of that is, is about how do you assert your own dignity as a child of God 
even in the face of a situation where you can't change the situation, you can't change the fundamental dynamics of power that might be at play, but you can assert your dignity and, and also at the same time show love for, for the person on the other side. Mm, I love that. I love, and I loved the idea. Everyone has to go read that about turn the other cheek. Yeah. It's very powerful. You will learn something new about, I did not know that until like, yeah, you're right. We don't have time, but we want people to buy the book. So go get it. (laughs) I mean, I just think as we, as LGBTQ families work through what we have to work through. And it's interesting that you talk about that gap because Jenny and I always say like one of the the problems with our families is that the parents, particularly the mothers, because that's who we work with, they are afraid to walk in, to step into the gap between what they believe and the other side, their child, and they're afraid that the Lord won't meet them there, that they'll be off the course or off, you know, the path or whatever. And we keep saying, like, sometimes we say we shove people into the gray area. I think the gap would be a better mm-hmm. phrase than the gray area, but that, because that's where we meet God. Yep. God's waiting for Like, us. I know you're alone here. I know you're afraid. I know you don't know what to do. And let's just take this one step at a time together. And, and, and I, I think it's interesting that I didn't get that when I listened to the podcast, that kind of connection between those two things that we have to do. And that's what it is. It is stepping into, it's like stepping into the, the void, right? We could go on forever, ever. I know there's so much. (laughs) much. We have not, if you have not read this book, please go read it. It will change your heart and it will, you, I love how you said assert your dignity because it gives you tools to do that. Because I think asserting your dignity is really learning to love yourself like God loves you. It's just another, another way of saying that. And I think we're the most powerful of loving others when we love ourselves as, as we see ourselves as God sees us. So thank you both David and Patrick. We want to ask you our famous question at the end, but they can get this book at Deseret and where else? can they find this book amazon um, anywhere online yeah anywhere online. yeah and i know it's audible because it's both so like it is a great gift and it will teach you really how christ wants us to interact with as human beings i really do think that it's pretty powerful it's a great i'm i can see why it took 10 years it's that good so, yeah. so patrick i know you have to jump off to a meeting I, yep. we're going to, we're going to ask the question, what does lift and love mean? But if you have to go, I, I knew we'd run short on time. So do you have time to give us that? I'll give you my two second answer to that. And then, and then thank you so much. And, and I'll have to, to run, but yeah, I mean, to, to, to me, it's, we want to, we want to lift up everybody that, that the, the, what it's, what we're called to do as Christians is to look for those whose hands hang down to look for those who, who feel uh, like they're on the outs or who feel marginalized or whose burdens are too heavy for them to bear to look for those. So it's, it's a proactive act of seeing, of seeing pain, seeing suffering, seeing mourning, and then responding to our covenantal obligation, the very first commitment that we make as covenanted Christians to mourn with those that mourn, to bear one another's burdens. That's it's it's to lift up those burdens so that they're not so heavy on other on other people. And why do we do that? Because that's exactly what Jesus does for us. So that lifting comes out of a place of of love. For me, it's it's simply responding to the call to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you, and thank you so much. I know you got to go, and we just, yeah. just so enjoyed this. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much. Okay, David, we're gonna give it to you. You ready? I think so. Although that's, it's just a wonderful question and Patrick answered it so beautifully, but (laughs) over the last, maybe just add, I would say amen to everything he said, and then just add maybe something that just in the last month has, for whatever reason has become important to me. I've, I've become uh, fascinated with the word receive and to receive the Holy ghost, to receive Christ, to receive another person in marriage, to receive, to receive, to receive someone else. And I, I realized for me, lifting and loving is ultimately opening ourselves to others. And that the act of receiving someone means ultimately emptying ourselves of who we are in a sense, not necessarily to, to, to disavow our identity, but I'm saying that, that our will and our, our selfish desires and to be, to, to open ourselves and be vulnerable to another person 
and all to, to open ourselves and be vulnerable to receive even God self is, is, is an incredibly courageous act and one that takes an awful lot of uh, one of my heroes outside of the, of the restoration is, is Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And he, he, he talked about the, to, to engage in the kind of nonviolent, aggressive, or, well, assertive, aggressive, wrong word, but assertive confrontational love that he, that he taught his um, people to do was to be fearless. He says, fearless is more than courage. Fearless is a willingness to essentially open ourselves without defenses. And so for me to, to, to truly lift and love someone is to open ourselves to them and to be willing to receive who they are in, in all of their glory and, and maybe also in all of their messiness. Right. Uh, And so, and that is a, that takes a lot of courage. It's hard for me. I'm a, I'm a person who is a, tends to be an a person who just, I'm very comfortable being by myself. And I am married to a woman who helps me constantly think beyond myself. So opening myself is not an easy thing. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for those moments when I've been able to do it. So I guess, I don't know if that's a, a, a good answer, but it's the way I would see lifting and loving is being open. Because once we open ourselves to one another, that's where connection, healing, and the work of God is really happening. Yeah. Without defensiveness. That's the key. That was beautiful. Put yeah. beautifully put, David. So thank good. you so much. And and thank you for being there for your nephew and and writing this book, like putting all of the things in years. Yes. Like this book will it, it will help change the world and I think really prepare us for the gathering and what the people we need to become for Christ. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for receiving us so well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you, listeners. I hope that you were delighted as we were today with David and Patrick. And I know if you have any questions, they'd probably love for you to reach out to them or to us because this is just a conversation that we need to keep having because we keep building these bridges as our community and making God not weep, right? And becoming one, becoming the Zion's people he knows we can become. All right. All right bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you like what we share, subscribe to the Lift and Love podcast. And if you have a minute, leave us a five-star rating so other families like yours can find us. When your child comes out, you need to find support where you feel safe and understood. This is why we created the Lift and Love Coaching Community, a place where parents can connect, learn, and grow in a private setting. Jenny is a certified, advanced-trained, faith-based life coach with almost 10,000 hours of coaching. Together, we have worked with hundreds of families just like yours. To see if the Lift and Love community is right for you, go to liftandlove.org and click on the community link. For more free information, support groups, and available resources, check out liftandlove.org and liftandlove.org on Instagram and Facebook. But most importantly, remember, you are not alone in this journey. We are building a community of thriving and faithful LGBTQ families who are here to lift and love you.